0: You're listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Daum, now on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas
1: prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time.
0: now.
1: People who wear a very clear kind of name tag or ideological tag, um, people who have a a very specifically defined set of issues or hobby horse. I mean, those are the people who everyone knows how to slot them in and use them. And, um, And people end up getting rewarded for a very particular kind of reaction or perspective that they muster over and over and over again. And it's, it's, it's the seat they're supposed to occupy on the TV panel. Um, it's why they're being brought in as a speaker. And I think in ways that an individual doesn't even realize is happening to him and her, you begin to sing the same refrain over and over again.
0: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, whose voice you just heard, is longtime, now former, New York Times columnist, Frank Bruni. But before we get to the interview, I want to make a few quick announcements. The first is that later this week, Thursday, August 19th, we will be having the first official unspeakable podcast virtual hangout. Listeners have been asking for ways to form a kind of community around the show, a chance to get together and rehash some of the things we talk about here and this will be our first effort. It will be on Zoom on August 19th from 9 to 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It's free to register, which you can do by going to com slash hangout or just clicking the very obvious hangout link on the homepage of the site and register, at which point you will get a Zoom link. Patreon supporters at any level can join me for half an hour before the event in the green room for a more intimate hangout, whatever that means. We can talk about the show. People can get to know one another. The topic, at least the main topic for the event itself, is the subject of an episode from a few weeks ago, which was a monologue I did about what I call the tyranny of the mid-career pivot. We'll let the conversation go where it takes us. But there's been a lot of interest in that subject, so we will just start there. If you're not already a Patreon supporter, you can join anytime at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. This is an especially good time to join as there are now ads on this podcast, and being a patron means you get ad-free episodes and you get them early. There are lots of other perks as well, and it just really helps me out. So please consider joining. Okay. My guest, Frank Bruni, is someone I've been wanting to talk with for quite a while now. He spent more than 25 years at The New York Times, the last 10 of them as a columnist on the Opinion page. He has also served as The Times White House correspondent, Rome bureau chief, and for five years, the chief restaurant critic. Frank recently left his column to become a professor of public policy and journalism at Duke University, though he still writes a weekly newsletter for The Times. We talked about his years as a columnist, his thoughts about the changing landscape of media and public thought in general, and also about an ongoing medical issue he's been dealing with and writing about, in which he's lost vision in one eye and faces a chance of losing his eyesight altogether. There's also, for fans of my dog Hugo, a cameo barking appearance in this interview. Something for everyone. Frank Bruni, welcome to the Unspeakable podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You were a New York Times columnist for 10 years. You're now doing a newsletter and will write occasional columns. Um, And I want to talk to you about all kinds of stuff that you do and have done. But let's just start here. On June 17th, you published your last official column. And I have to say it nearly brought tears to my eyes, you did this really bold and unusual thing, which is that instead of signing off with the expected platitudes about what a great ride it had been, although you were clearly grateful for the experience, you talked about the ways in which you had gotten things wrong. And I, I, you know, I, I was also a columnist for 10 years and boy, did I relate to that. So why don't we just start off? Tell me why you chose to do your last column in this particular way?
1: Uh, well, thank, thanks for asking that. And thanks for saying um, nice things about the column. Um, I, it, I was always uncomfortable, and I know you're going to relate to this, um, and it's one of the reasons I'm so delighted to be talking with you. I, I, I was always uncomfortable with the sort of pose we're asked to strike as columnists, as all-knowing. Um, we're supposed to feel very strongly one way or the other about things, and, and that's just not Kind of congenitally, who I am, um, there's just this sort of expectation that you will speak and write with this with this air of authority and certitude um, and i I'm doubtful about a lot of things. I feel great ambivalence about a lot of things. I think I see the world primarily in shades of gray, um, and I realized as I was exiting there was an opportunity, a moment when it would make a lot of sense to talk about that. I thought readers might relate to it. I thought other columnists might relate to it. And I just thought it would do some good, I mean, internally for me, but also externally to say, you know, we all uh, we all speak in these, not we all, but those of us who write columns, those of us who <laughs> we are, all We
0: who write columns like
1: to speak yeah, yeah, by yeah, saying like we all, everyone. but yeah, we like I to know. say we- um, uh, for I mean I hate the word pundits, but we are considered pundits and we behave as pundits. And I had still have a contract with CNN. Um, we, the kind of garb of that is 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 to be so certain about things and almost I hate to say it to be condescending. And I just thought there was a really good opportunity as i exited to say well wait a second um, i don't feel that way and it's always been uh, a little bit uncomfortable for me and um, and i worry about how many of us adopt this tone adopt this pose when it's not it's not kind of consistent with how most people experience the world and live and i also worry and then I'll shut up and let you ask another question i also i worry a lot about polarization partisanship in america and i think that sort of emphatic certain Unambivalent pose. I, I think it it amplifies partisanship and polarization rather than pushing back at it, and that troubles me.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's something about just the conceit of the newspaper column in and of itself that I often wonder if it's even useful anymore. If you're really an honest broker, I mean, the the job of the writer is to is to you know embrace and grapple with his or her own conflicts, right? So like, it's, it's antithetical to the form of a column. Or if you try to make if you try to make the column to sort of gray area ish, are you sort of failing as a columnist? I mean, was there something about the form itself that was feeling sort of fruitless after a point?
1: Well, it's interesting you say failing as a columnist. Um, I, I can't- Yeah, I wasn't I, suggesting
0: I, that you were failing oh, no, as a no, columnist no, no, no,
1: no, in no, any I, way. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, that's not what I'm reacting to. I, I, I probably more frequently failed than succeeded as a columnist. And, I, and I'm okay with that. I tried I tried my best and, and I think I did some good work amid um, work that I wish were better. But the, I wanted to respond to the word fail. One of the problems here is the marketplace. And here I'm going to um, deflect uh some of the responsibility or share the responsibility or blame or whatever for this kind of exaggerated certitude of the media i'm going to put some of that back on consumers um, I think you know when I look not just at my own columns when I look at columns at the times that do well or don't do well by the yardstick of metrics. Um, and metrics have become a very big and warping factor in the media today, Um, readers respond to screeds. Readers respond to Jeremiah's. Readers don't respond to, well, you can look at this issue from eight different ways. Um, And these people over here, they may not be right, but they have a few valid points. And these people over here, in fact, if you do that, even if you do it in a very meticulously apportioned way, people throw the word false equivalence at you. And I hate that phrase because you can say, here, this this side is right on X, Y, Z, A, B, C, but let's not forget that, that point F, which the other side brought up is a good one, you haven't equivalenced it, you haven't equaled anything. But the minute you give any side um, any kind of point or credibility, you get thrown this false equivalence thing. Anyway, back to the metrics thing though, it is hard to succeed as a columnist by the yardstick that we're given today um, if you wallow in ambivalence because that's not what the marketplace responds to.
0: Yeah. D- did you
1: want to I mean, does this resonate with you? I mean- total, did, did, Oh, this, a hundred, yeah.
0: totally, totally. I mean, I don't even, a part of the reason I'm hesitating is I have so many thoughts and I have so many questions I'm trying to figure out where to start. Right, so, well, let's start here. Did you want to be an opinion haver, an opinion columnist. You were a reporter for a long time. You covered Rome. You you know you covered the the Bush campaign, the White House. You were restaurant critic, famously. <laughs> Did you all during this time were you saying to yourself, "Oh gosh, if I can just pay my dues, you know, this way someday I'll get to be an op-ed columnist."
1: No, not at all. Um, I mean, I um, I have never had a. I mean, the 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 kind of riot of contradictory jobs that I've had or beats that I've had. You just mentioned, I think, point to this. I have never had a career arc or career plan. I have just always wanted to do the next thing that was sort of new and interesting and scary and challenging. And so I, I do think there are, especially today, because opinion journalism has exploded or maybe the word metastasized would be better. Um, I think there are a lot of people. No, and it's it's. um the compensation, for lack of a better word, for opinion journalism is often greater than it is for news journalism. I mean, it is it is often the opinion journalists uh, who have podcasts or, you know, network contracts, stuff like that, who get who get different sorts of speaking fees. And again, the marketplace is really crazy and, and warped right now. Um, but I had never been one of those people who thought, oh, I want to I want to be an opinion Journalist. I want to write columns. I want to opine on TV. Um, I just liked doing different journalistic things and flexing different journalistic muscles. And someone came to me, and said, "You know what makes sense for you next is 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 we think you you'd be a good columnist." Um, Frank Rich had just left The Times to go do, um, you know, some very exciting things in the world of TV cable TV, and, and, and to write occasionally for New York Magazine. Um, I wasn't meant to replace him per se, but it opened up a spot. Um, and someone said, do you want to do this? And I thought, well, that'll be a real stretch, a real challenge. And so I agreed to do it. Um, but it always felt a little awkward to me because I'm as full of doubt as I am of certitude. And that isn't that isn't the particular muscle you're asked to flex as a columnist.
0: So you did it for 10 years. It's now 2021. Does that mean you started in 2011?
1: I think it was 2011. I get so bad. At the, I'm horrible at the timeline of my own ridiculous life. Um, I think it was 2011. In fact, yes, I'm sure it was because I think my first column was on um, the enactment, uh, the legalization of same-sex marriage in New York. Uh, state, and that happened I believe in June of two thousand and eleven
0: okay, so do you have a sense looking back at that time that you were able to do things or make certain rhetorical moves or just embrace a kind of uh ambivalence that you were then not able to do just because of the attention span or the sort of bandwidth of of readers do you do you are you able to trace any kind of arc in terms of your approach or your just kind of faith in your readers to get what you were trying to do.
1: You know, my, my memory of, of the first months, the first years is just not exact enough to say that I understand what you're asking. It makes sense. I, what I remember in a more general sense is I just, I remember beginning, and I think this was a failing of mine. I remember at the start um, kind of doing columns that fell more into the category of analysis uh, which comes to me more naturally than opinionating, or, or to, to invent a verb. Um, and I, I remember kind of noticing, like, I'm not getting the the feedback. I'm not seeming to kind of connect as well as I as I could. Um, and and then I think I got a little bit more. I'm going to keep inventing words here. Opiniony, and that seemed to work better in in terms of forging a relationship with readers. One of the reasons it's kind of hard for me to figure this all out um, is by the time Trump came along, everything changed. You know, so I, I say that I wallow in ambivalence. I see a lot of sides of different things. From the get-go, it was pretty clear to me, not pretty clear, it was abundantly clear to me that Donald Trump was a different beast and was terrible news, and that there weren't a whole lot of different angles from which to look at him, Um, and that I did not feel a lot of ambivalence about would this man make a a good or even a coherent or sensible or plausible or palatable president. So it's kind of hard for me. That has sort of scrambled my memory of of, of what the time before him was like because the time during Trump – who was just such an enormous figure in any opinion writer's life for five years. It it has obliterated or eclipsed some of the other memories.
0: But at the same time, there were and are certain cookie-cutter responses to the quote-unquote Trump emergency that I think a lot of columnists just went ahead and and engaged with and implemented. And and you never did that. I felt like you were always trying to do something different. I mean, part of the reason I love your column so much was because you really just, you you wanted to be original. You wanted to say something that hadn't been said or present an angle that was not an obvious one. So like when Trump came along, did you feel like there was this mandate to just kind of like, you know, join all hands on deck and say the obvious things and and hashtag resistance. Or were you wanting to kind of just even entertain the question of like, well, how did this happen and how have liberals failed? Uh, how have the <laughs> Democrats failed? I mean, how did you kind of square all of that?
1: Well, well, you just actually uh, uh, anticipated and said one. I mean, one thing that was important to me, and I hope I did enough of, and I don't know, and and that was a very kind and generous assessment of my work. Um, much too kind is what I'm trying to say. But I, I do think one way to, I think, approach the whole Trump years, I hope more intelligently and just not on autopilot was to do precisely what you just flagged, which was to ask the question and write columns about how did we get here. Um, and I a lot of that was about uh, the blind spots, the failures of, of Democrats in politics. And I, and I hope I wrote enough about that um, it's interesting. I mean, that, those those were columns that got more complaint from readers, more pushback. Um, but those were columns that were well read because I think there were the people who read them angrily, like we bear no responsibility for the, for the dawn and the reign of this man. And then there were people who really were readers who really were struggling with that question. Um, from the perspective, which is my perspective, is we have to make sure this never happens again. And so if we're going to make sure this never happens again, it's not just about chronicling this man's faults, which after a certain point was almost pointless because the people who were going to see Trump clearly had been given plenty of evidence and the people who were never going to see him clearly did not need more evidence. It was a tribal impulse that they were indulging. So it seemed to me the more important journalism at that point was to explore like okay how did we how did we clear the stage for this person? how did we open the door to this person um, and I think that was one way to come at it I also you know just within within the general space of revulsion toward donald donald trump I think there were there were angles or questions to ask that were a little bit more specific that hopefully could lead you toward originality like i 'm remembering early on. I don't think it was an utterly original column, but I think it was written before more of it was written. Um, I just spent a whole column exploring. Imagine if Trump did all these things and was a woman, would he have possibly mm. gotten away with it? Now I worry sometimes that I've written this too. And I think, this connects you and me. I worry sometimes that we kind of scream sexism or racism or all of these isms too quickly in a given situation. But those isms are all pervasive and very true. And in the case of Donald Trump, I thought it was fascinating. Um, Nothing he did uh, in terms of his his excesses, in terms of his uh, uh, tactlessness, in terms of his offensiveness. If a woman... Um, of enormous charisma had tried to do any of those things, she would have had no political career. I believe that uh, to the core of my being.
0: That's interesting. I think that's true. And I also think that a- another kind of woman uh, could have gotten away with her own version of Trumpism. I mean, what if Sarah Palin had somehow been elevated? Her style is not Trump's style. But I wonder if her level of incompetence it it would have just been its own thing. I mean it's, well, it's she, kind I mean, of a, yeah. She
1: hit she hit a roadblock uh much faster than he did. I mean she Oh did, of course. She, I'm not
0: saying and, she would have gotten yeah. elected. But but, yeah. but
1: also there 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 are all sorts of I mean with Sarah Palin there was nothing uh there were none of this. I mean to my memory there was nothing in, in league with the Donald Trump sexual improprieties. Um I don't I don't recall Sarah Palin doing anything analogous to, I mean, to to, to draw another point of contrast, you have Sarah Palin who, you know, for lack of a better verb, served John McCain, and you have Donald Trump who came out of the gate insulting (laughs) John McCain's, like, years as a prisoner of war. Um, Sarah Palin was... uh, to my to my mind and and in my eyes a, a ludicrous political figure and the idea of her with real power was scary and yet i I can't find her nearly as offensive as I do Donald Trump on nearly as many fronts
0: yeah i I wasn't suggesting that she was offensive in in the same way or or to that level. I was just thinking you know it's an interesting thought experiment so a a woman doing even a fraction of the things that Trump did would never have gotten away with it. But like, he is so just stereotypically male. It's hard to, like, I wonder if, if there is a version of an utterly incompetent female political leader, uh, she would have her own sort of set of crimes and, uh, you know, things to, to be appalled at. Yeah. Uh, And I wonder like if, yeah, if, if, if by simple virtue of being a woman if she would not have gotten as far anyway we don't have to go down this rabbit hole but it's a, but like <laughs> no, but this, I do, this,
1: I do i do get what you're saying yeah, see totally. this is
0: the kind of thing okay like if when I was a columnist i w- i might have tried to uh entertain that that very series of ideas in a column, but it would have been such a waste of time because like I can't even figure it out as I'm sitting here talking to you and it's certainly not something I could nail down and 730 words so it's
1: like that- but i would have i would have glad i would have gladly read it i mean i i wish well, you would have yeah. well i wish i wish more i wish the kind of column form in term and, and what readers expected of it brought to it i wish it was more like let's roll this around let's hash yes. through this let's whatever but um that's not that's actually not the genre at least not today and probably not ever really but um but that's that's who you are. That's who I am. It's why why neither of us ever found the perfect home in a column.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember at one point um, there was an effort to syndicate my column in the L.A. Times, and it failed utterly because they they couldn't figure out who I was. I mean, they, they needed you know the sale. There was a sales force that needed to go out and like convince random local newspapers all over the country that I was somebody worth running. But I was neither fish nor fowl. They couldn't figure out what my angle was. Is she our conservative? Is she our liberal?
1: Is she our feminist? Is she our anti-feminist? Yeah. No. And I mean, and that's another one of those warping factors in the media today. Um, People who wear a very clear kind of name tag or ideological tag, um, people who have a a, a very specifically defined set of issues or hobby horse. I mean, those are the people who everyone knows how to slot them in and use them. And um, and people end up getting rewarded for a very particular kind of reaction or perspective that they muster over and over and over again. And it's, it's, it's the seat they're supposed to occupy on the TV panel. Um, it's why they're being brought in as a speaker. And I think in ways that an individual doesn't even realize is happening to him and her you begin to sing the same refrain over and over again, because in, in ways that you're not even initially conscious of, you're being rewarded for that refrain. Um, and when you try to change the tune, the rewards diminish. And it's not like you're sitting there doing an ar- doing the arithmetic, but it, it's Pavlovian. You I was going to say, up. it yeah. is Pavlovian. Yeah. And before you know it, you have become a very before you become it, you've become a very specific thing in a very cinching outfit. Um and if you dare stray from that, you're actually kind of uh gonna spoil the formula, spoil the model. And all of this is reflexive. It's not it's not some kind of cynical plot.
0: Well, and you started writing probably probably around the time that Trump was elected, or maybe a little bit after that, about a lot of these culture war issues that I've written about and that we talk about on this show all the time. I mean, you became somebody who I was really following um, with respect to to campus debates and free speech issues. I thought you were very, very balanced. And just, again, I, I thought you were You were wrestling with this stuff in a way that was honest and authentic and original. You weren't going to come down hard on one side or the other. But, you know, for instance, you did you had a column in August of 2017, the headline. And I don't know. Do you write the headlines? Because. Brett Stevens told me wrote, he did write the, his own headlines, I wrote, I, <laughs> I wrote
1: almost all of my own headlines. So yeah. uh, it, it was. It, it's not formally the case anymore at the Times. It changed about a year, or a year and a half ago, but it was sort of a columnist prerogative to write a headline, you know, with, oh, with, with feedback and all of that. Um, and it was sort of, until I think about a year and a half ago, it was sort of the columnist really like had the final yay or nay on a headline. Um that changed there were a couple of i think headlines that 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 kind of didn't work or generated unintended reaction and so i think it was a year a year and a half ago the actual kind of policy changed and an editor had the last word on a headline but it was still if you you were given the first shot the second shot the third shot at a headline and unless something was wrong with it you there was deference to what you wanted to do, even if you didn't finally have the ultimate, you know, presidential power. And so okay. I almost always wrote my headlines, except when I couldn't come up with a good one and I said to an editor, Do you have a better one? You know, but I, I was sort of the captain of my headlines, yeah.
0: Okay. So um there's a column from August twelfth, two thousand seventeen. I'm a white man, hear me out. Right. <laughs> so it's remarkable to read this. It's a it's a great column and it's also the kind of thing one would never read today, especially in the New York Times. Um, And, you know, this, I, I, I feel like this is maybe the beginning of the period where you were really writing about these identity politics issues. You were digging into this stuff. You know, the column starts, I'm a white man, so you should listen to absolutely nothing I have to say, at least on matters of social justice. I have no standing, no way to relate. My color and gender nullify me. Talk about how you grew up upper middle class in the suburbs so this was uh this was the era when we were talking about what had happened at evergreen state college for instance Mm -hmm. i think that had been a few months earlier um you know, Mark Lilla's piece, which I think came out in The New York Times right after the Trump election. Am I remembering that right?
1: Um, uh, that was a, it came out right after. He's, he's yeah. quoted in the column of mine that you just started to read. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: Mark Lilla is a Columbia professor and he had written. Uh, he's not a uh, he's not a regular columnist. New York Times it was a guest column. But he had written, you know, basically the piece that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Why did this happen? The Democrats really have to do some soul searching, what's happened to the liberal project, et cetera, et cetera. I remember reading Lilla's column and thinking, oh, this is brilliant. This is is spectacular. A star is born. And he, in fact, was completely vilified for it, at least uh, in certain corners. So I guess this is just my really circuitous way of asking, um, when did you start really deciding that you were going to start talking about identity politics issues? And- How did you make sure that you were doing it in a way that was different uh, and and just consistent with your approach generally?
1: Well, you know, I am I can't remember why I started writing about it for the same reason any of us started writing about it. I became disturbed and that column is all about this. I became disturbed by the idea that we're saying, like, you can't have um, a legitimate intelligent perspective on, on topic A or B, unless you're X or Y kind of person. Right. I mean, it feels to me like if we believe in empathy, how can we say that? Um, if we believe in fiction literature, how can we say well, that? I don't
0: think we believe in fiction anymore. Right. But this is standpoint epistemology. They call this right. Um, that you're not allowed to speak for any uh, group to which you don't belong.
1: But Basically. we've 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 worked our, we've worked ourselves and and I think I actually say this or have someone say that in the column, we've worked ourselves in a position where you're saying you must understand me, you can't possibly understand me. Those are those are contradictory requests, demands. Uh, those are contradictory assertions. Um, and uh, I mean, I think the way I tried to write about it, the way I tried to speak about it, I went. I'm, I'm flashing back now. Um, I was maybe the first speaker that Middlebury, uh, had on campus after the whole debacle with, um, Charles Murray. Um, and, uh, I remember giving a speech that, that engaged some of these issues and, um, they were nervous about it at Middlebury because there had been, and I, the way I talked about it then, and I, I, I seem to find a groove that night and I don't think I've written about it as well. It was, I make very clear, my goal is the same goal, I think the same kind of largest, larger goal or whatever, um, as a lot of the people who engage in, in what I feel are, 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 uh, less constructive forms of identity politics. I want a socially just world. I want everybody to have a place at the table. I want everybody represented. I believe, um, uh, Unconditionally, in, in the importance and the value of diversity, I just worry that, sometime, that, that some people are, are, are charting the wrong road there. I think when um, campuses become archipelagos of affinity groups, as opposed to places where people mix diversely, I don't think that gets us to this place of perfect social justice and total inclusion that I too want to get to. Um, I think when you tell people you cannot understand my experience or participate in this political question because you are the wrong gender or the wrong sexual orientation or the wrong gender identity, I don't think we're getting to that place. So I like to make really clear, I want the same world you want. I just worry that we're not taking the right path there.
0: When you said that in that talk at Middlebury, what was the response? Were they receptive or did they say the thing they often say, which is that that perspective in and of itself is a privilege?
1: No, they didn't. Um, Maybe I got lucky that night. I probably did. (laughs) I probably did get lucky that night, but I I think uh, it was, I was, I was some, the neurons were firing in a better way that night than they are right now. And I apologize for that. So, I was much more articulate that night than I am now. No, that now, was very but,
0: articulate. I thought. But I think no, I, I was so. Exactly you're being kind. Saying. I
1: think. Uh, I, I think I was just so clear that we're on the same side, and, and, and that, and I think, and I, I think they saw that it was genuine. I mean, I, and it is genuine. I mean, I want. I want a world in, in, in which everybody has the same opportunity to excel and realize their dreams, and all of that. Um, I just worry that the way we're having the conversation about that today, not all the times, but some of the ways, some of the ways, a few of the ways we're having that conversation right now um, are driving people apart. I mean, I and I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but I mean, I see people kind of shutting down and withdrawing from the public square and 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 not speaking uh, and stewing inside because they're so worried Uh, that their perspective will be rejected, their words will be misunderstood, you know, that sort of thing.
0: You've written a lot about higher education. You have at least one book about it. I'm curious, you know, when we talk so much about these culture wars and especially these generational conflicts in newsrooms, in, in workplaces, just in general, a lot of it comes down to, well, the reason this is happening is because there is a kind of um a kind of doctrine that certain kinds of kids who go to certain kinds of elite colleges are just um soaking in and you know we can have a kind of facile conversation about how misapplied ideas about intersectionality function as a doctrine that a lot of these educated people are taking with them into the adult world but i'm wondering as somebody who's looked really hard at higher education and and the you know high school educations that lead up to it, I wonder if you have a deeper diagnosis um, about why this is happening. Uh, just you know to young people, and then why they're why they're bringing it with them into the wider world.
1: You know, I, I don't, and I ask that question of of my of I ask that same question a lot because I do wonder. Um, I something something is happening. At the school level, um, and we 've all focused media wise on college because I just think it's there's something easy about writing about college, um, but I think it happens before college um, and some something has happened that has led to the kind of things that that you 're talking about, but i I can't, you know, I can't pinpoint when it happened or why it happened, um, but I think it is becoming more, more um, heatedly hashed out and more thoroughly investigated now than it was before. I mean, you are seeing in a lot of schools, um, parents who, I mean, certainly this has been a big story with private schools in New York City where you live. Um, you're seeing more kind of parents ask like. Why why is the education the way it is? Why, um, why are my children um spending so much time uh being being taught about certain matters of social injustice um and and, and not about some of the things we have to be proud of proud of as a country? Um and maybe this is just kind of a great impulse that has become a little bit too exaggerated. Maybe it's not too exaggerated. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I feel very humble about these things because I'm not in those high school classrooms. I'm not, I'm not on those high school grounds. Um, when I have been on college campuses, I just mentioned Middlebury. Um, everything that's written about, everything we wring our hands about is true to a point, but the campuses don't feel quite like the caricatures I read in the media. And that's another thing I still don't fully understand. I mean, I taught at Princeton for a semester in 2014. And granted, in terms of the things we're talking about, 2014 feels like a century ago, but it's not a century ago. And I had a fully, fully subscribed seminar of 16 students in my writing class. Um, And I would say individually and as a group, they did not fit the caricatures um and i'm i'm using the word caricature to but they did not fit the stereotypes um of the coverage um i'm about to start teaching in 3 weeks at duke so i haven't interacted with the students there but it's my strong suspicion based on some some preliminary interactions that i've had that i'm also going to find it not quite um the almost satirized environment of media coverage. And and one of the things I wanna come to understand, and maybe I'll write about it, is why there is that disconnect um and I think it's it's I think it's partly reflective of something that is a big problem in our politics right now, a problem that is connected very much to social media, which is that the loudest voices come to define any and every environment. The loudest voices by which I mean obviously not volume, but the people who are tweeting the most, who or who are tweeting the most splenetically, um, the people who are uh blogging the most or blogging the most splenetically. And I think Um, A really kind of perverting thing has happened in the way we look at campuses and the way we even analyze American politics, where we tend to um, jump to enormous conclusions based on those louder voices. And we we have conflicting evidence. So I suspect something is true on campus that is also true in our politics and that was revealed by Joe Biden's election. I think it's impossible to analyze Joe Biden's success in the Democratic primaries and then his election as president without coming to the conclusion that he was proof that the loudest voices on Twitter are so far from the majority Mm -hmm. of the country.
0: Mm -hmm. And yet now that he's in office, we're seeing a lot of pandering to that sort of sensibility. Or or maybe that's just what we're hearing about in the news or I'm seeing people making fun of on Twitter, but there is, I hate to use the term virtue signaling because it just seems so reductive and dismissive, but we're seeing a lot of virtue signaling out of that administration. So well, how do you account I mean, for that?
1: Well, I mean, I'm going to just use the word, the phrase virtue signaling, because you did, and you used it apologetically. So I, I don't, I'm not, asterisk I'm not, I'm not using...
0: after it. Yes. We're using it
1: ironically. Yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, but I'm not using it in a, in a mocking way. I know. Like, but but the stuff you're talking about, uh, this is just a possible theory of the case. It's one thing I wonder. I find myself watching um, Biden and the people around him, or who are the most Biden-like or reflective of, of, of what he wants to happen. I wonder if some of what you're seeing is happening so that when it then comes to the legislation, they can actually plow through the middle a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. yes, he yes he came out of the gate with, enor- with an enormous spending package, um, but you know what? That enormous spending echoed the enormous spending of his Republican uh, predecessor in the context of the pandemic. I mean, everyone focused on that first big piece of stimulus relief whatever you want to call it that Biden signed and we were and we were and we were being treated to no shortage of media stories about wow he's the new FDR which was ridiculous because it also was kind of extrapolating forward to all the all the trillions he wanted to spend to come it's not clear he's going to get to spend those trillions at all but his that package was not that much bigger than what had happened once the pandemic dawned in the administration before him, right? Look at infrastructure now. It's pretty clear that Joe Biden will be content or would be content um, with with what would represent a, a bipartisan compromise measure. Um, he is not, to my, to, as best I can tell, Um, indulging that much or capitulating to the progressives in the House. Um, So the other stuff that people point to and say, wow, that feels really out there. Wow, that feels really lefty. That's mostly in the realm of words. But in the realm of actual spending and legislation, do do we see that same thing in Joe Biden? Not quite yet. I mean, he's proposed stuff that I think he knows he's never going to achieve. And I kind of wonder if he kind of gives this set of signals um, to kind of quiet a, a certain group that could foil things and then just plows through not exactly the center, but the center left.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And then, of course, a lot of people on the left would say, well, you say that like it's a positive thing. You know, this is exactly they they say that, you know, whether it's corporate signaling or whatever it is, that this is used as cover as people just maintain the status quo and keep the people in power who've always been in power. But yeah, I mean, that's a, well, that, I'm, that's saying a different... as,
1: I'm saying it not as positive or negative. In this right, case, I'm saying, it not, yeah, I'm saying it just as analytical. and 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 I'm not making a judgment as to whether the kind of progressive wish list or the anti-progressive wish list is true, but I, I believe in in um I don't believe in letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. I believe in doing something rather than nothing. I'm not sure an all or nothing approach gets us any legislation at all. Um and so to me, like ideology is over here. Practicality is <laughs> we have certain needs, certain of those needs involve spending. How do we get some spending, right? Right,
0: right, yeah. I, I wanna go back to the campus thing uh for a minute because that is something you know you've you've taught, you're about to teach, and I wanna talk about that in a little bit, but you've visited a lot of campuses and you've talked to a lot of students and a lot of professors. When you say that the kind of campus craziness uh that that people like Tucker Carlson and others you know, can't stop talking about, it's, that's not really what it is. It's a much more complicated picture. What do you see? Do you see students who are generally in the middle or tend to be just curious? Do you see students who say, I can't speak up in class, I'm afraid to voice my opinion? Like, what, what's the kind of, you know, it's obviously it's, it's a tapestry, but like, just how would you just describe it off the top of your well, head? Well, it's
1: it's it's all of the above. I don't know if this is a direct answer to your question, but it's all of the above. Here are just some kind of things that have caught my eye, my ear, et cetera. Um, when I was writing more about higher education, certainly when I was writing my book about college admissions, I talked frequently with and got to know um, many college presidents. Um, and they would say things to me. That they would never say publicly because they're worried about those loudest voices on Twitter, just the way newspaper editors are worried about it, et cetera. Um, And it was clear to me that they did not ascribe to some kind of, you know, kooky, um uber 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 progressive uh i I, mean, I don't know what the language for it is but they were um i mean they were they were probably most of them were political liberals as that would have been defined in a much kind of calmer and different different way um but they were they were people kind of struggling with all of the questions that you struggle with on this podcast some of the questions that we've engaged today um, i have found that when you talk to students not in a pro when you're not arguing with them if your tone is not combative but it's more uh um curious um and if you kind of ask them in a certain kind of tone um and not as a and not as a sort of like punitive or questioning or if you ask them what about this what about that um, they're intelligent people who have intellectual curiosity and can be moved beyond any sort of political cant. Um, it just feels to me like that's just not tilled or coaxed to the extent it, it, it should be, because everybody is so worried about saying the wrong thing. I just wish people. I, I wish we could we could tweak these cultures, the political culture, the campus culture, so that people didn't feel the price of a badly uttered syllable was so high. Um, and so that people kind of gave each other the benefit of the doubt when they entered into discussions, because I think with that slight adjustment, you would find um, much less acrimony um, and and much more possibility of common ground than seems to be the case right now.
0: Yeah, and you know I'll ask you a question I have asked so many people on this podcast. Why is it that more administrators, leaders, aren't stepping up and saying i'm not going to listen to you tiny percentage of twitter screamers like we I, we're not afraid of you i'm just going to i'm going to go ahead i'm not going to change my my policy my approach uh just because a few people are screaming i feel like if one college president stepped up and did that the rest would follow i know the president at university of chicago uh did that he's not um he's not in the in the position at the moment but like what? Why don't they just man up, so to speak?
1: There aren't enough examples yet of um, of a university president uh, or or someone in that kind of position doing it. Um, triggering a, um, I keep using Twitter, but I'm done. Just that's my stand-in for all social media. There's not enough example of someone doing it. Um, facing a a fierce Twitter outcry and then being um, supported by whoever else in the food chain needs to support that person so they don't end up uh, suffering professional um, ostracism, right? So there's not enough examples of someone doing it and a board of trustees or whatever that committee is saying, we've got your back, um, et etc. Um, and I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I think there are examples of the opposite. And and there just need to be. So so you need someone who, regardless of the counterexamples, has enough signals from their governing body, from their board of trustees, from whatever it is, their board of directors, that it's going to be okay. And then they need to do it. And then it needs to be okay. And then the next person will do it. Um, but we sort of live you know they live in a, in a in a culture and we also live in a in a culture where everyone is is governed by the most offended uh you know um and we just need examples um in all of the realms where that's the case we need examples of of people not letting the most offended um rule the day because there are situations in which the, in which the most offended have absolute you know uh, there's there's full reason for that offense and there are situation situations in which that offense is being taken too quickly and too rashly and being expressed um uh too unreasonably. Well it's been
0: weaponized. But I just it's like who are these presidents afraid of? Because certainly the the boards of trustees are not a woke crowd, neither are the parents, neither are the alumni. So like who's afraid of who here?
1: But well, that's the $64,000 question. Like how, how does, I mean, it really is. And I, I, mean, there should, there should be a whole body of journalism on this, but how does, how do you have situations in which what, what is often a viewpoint that is so far from the majority of the overwhelming majority viewpoint, how, how does that viewpoint end up um, kind of shaping everything Um I, I, I don't I don't fully understand it. Do you?
0: No. And uh, and it's certainly it's it's not a follow the money kind of thing, because I can't believe that if if the presidents at places like Harvard and Yale and Brown and Princeton anywhere, if if they suddenly made Twitter angry at them, I can't believe that that would have a negative effect on applications. If anything, they would go up. These these places are not hurting for money, nor nor will they be for a very long time. I, it's, it's like it just doesn't make any sense. I, I've said this before. It's like the culture is being held hostage by some phantom.
1: <laughs> I mean, maybe uh, and here again, I'm just thinking out loud and hashing this out with you. I think I think one of one of the reasons is I think a sort of good and admirable and earnest. Uh, those maybe aren't the right adjectives, but one, which is sometimes the. Um, you know, we're kind of speaking in hypotheticals, but sometimes w- whatever, whatever cluster of people are, are most offended by something and end up kind of, um, shutting down conversation, whatever. Often this is happening within the, within a larger context of this particular, this particular iteration of offense, this particular, the particular prompt for this offense may not seem, um, may not seem to kind of rise to everything that's going on and all of that, but, the larger context for the offense is a desire um for uh for a fairer, better, more just um kinder uh, uh climate of wherever it is country campus yeah, whatever yeah, and and so sometimes I think it ends up working out the way it does because because people people want to do right in the largest sense and and it feels like that largest sense is served by hearing, listening to, and responding to this particular thing. And and it gets confused in that way. Um, Like the the given fact pattern of that situation ends up being a little bit nuts, but it's all happening a larger context of, yes, we want to get to this place. Yes, we want to be fair, enlightened, inclusive, whatever people. Um, And so it does become hard to navigate a particular circumstance because that circumstance exists within this much, much kind of larger arc.
0: Yes, yes. But what you're describing, it's not that complicated. It doesn't seem like it would be that hard to entertain these two concepts at the same time. These are some of the smartest people in the world. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and, and why can't they see that? Well, I don't I don't know. You may you may be paying academia way okay, too Okay, all right. They it. there's the most uh,
0: No, but I mean I don't think the There's, some, know, of, there's the,
1: some of the most educated well, people. Well, I'm not talking think, about the think, students. Think, I'm, I'm talking about the pres
0: the president of Harvard or Yale, you know. That's not a dummy. It may be, you know, there may be all sorts of, you know, character flaws and intellectual deficiencies, but on balance, I, I would imagine that the president of an Ivy League university could understand that there's a difference between um, championing social justice causes broadly and having an intellectually honest debate and environment on campus. But maybe that's asking too much.
1: Yes. um, Yes. But but that's but we're we're, we're talking about it at the luxury we have the luxury of a remove. Right. Everything you say is true. And yet I imagine when there is a crisis on a given day, a given week and a given hour, it is very hard as I think it's hard for any human being, no matter how intellectually nimble, no, no matter how emotionally nimble, to kind of pull back from the heat of the moment and look at the big picture the way you just did. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Isn't, I think a, it... lot of the, a lot of these things happen. A lot of the things that happen that we think, how did that chain of events happen that way? Um, that chain of events happens in the heat of a sequence of moments. And it's, it's very difficult when you're in the center of that storm, just to wildly mix metaphors. I have the kitchen, I have the climate. Um, it's, very, it's very hard in the center of a situation like that to pull back um, and see that calmer, bigger picture.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's true. It's easy to talk about this stuff on podcasts, but
1: it's very But can I go back years. to something else we talked about? Because you, you mentioned that two thousand seventeen essay, which yes, thank you for that. Well, I wanted to get back to it just because it was titled I'm a white man hear me out, and I was making the point that we shouldn't um we shouldn't determine uh the legitimacy of people's voices and conversations based on their category. What I said right after that was there are situations in which I'm given the signal that Um, that I, that I shouldn't weigh in, uh, that however I see or interpret things is going to be impossibly flawed, uh, and kind of fatally flawed, uh, by my privilege, by the, by the cinched parameters of my perspective. I'm also gay. Um, and as I said in that column, I'm not just gay. I'm, I'm gay from the early 1980s. I'm gay. I was openly gay at a moment in time. When I realized I was gay, and I think I realized it by the age of 12 at the latest, um, I was scared about what that meant uh, for my future because the world was different then. I mean, it was a hell of a lot better then than it was for someone who realized uh, uh, he or she was gay in the 1950s, but it was still like a scary, like, what does this mean for my, I mean, I think I'm a journalist in part because when I was um, when I was in high school and college, uh, and I was gay, and I was openly gay in college. I kind of thought, you know, there are certain professions where this is going to be a set of ankle weights. This is going to hurt me because I'm not going to fit in, and I have got to go do something for a living. Oh, wow! I've got, I've got, I've got to find, I've got to find a realm where if you're a bit of an outcast or a nonconformist. Um, it 's no point against you, so i mean i I was in this um, I was in this prestigious program at the University of North Carolina, this prestigious merit scholarship program and i I would say i mean it, it felt to me like half of my classmates were looking at investment banking at the time that was the thing you know then it became management consulting. I doubt either of those worlds would have been right for me, but I remember thinking ah that 's what you do when you fit into the country club that 's what you do when you anyway, my point is. I, I, I understand in a small way, I'm not equating this with the experiences of, of of a person of color or whatever, but I understand in a small way what it feels like to be marginalized or to, fe- to, to fear that. And so in that essay, I said, so there are people who would say, ah, oh, you can speak of and to things because you're gay. You can't speak of and to things because you're white. You know what? I don't think either of those things actually... Argues for or against my perspective or the legitimacy of it. I I, I think I think one's voice in something has more to do with matters of character and intellect. And that was my point was let's not invite or disinvite people into discussions based on the category they're slotted into. Let's let's invite or disinvite them into discussions based on the credibility of their argument and the earnestness of their character.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad you circled back to this piece because we, I kind of, uh, I kind of we got a little derailed and I meant to to talk about it in in greater depth. Yeah. I mean, what you just said though, and what you say in the piece, and you've got a lot of name checks actually in this, in this column of people who are friends of the show, Phoebe malt who wrote a wonderful book about privilege. She was way ahead of her time with the, uh, the privilege, the the, uh, cultural obsession with privilege. You talk about Thomas Chatterton Williams. Um, Okay. Is this now considered a kind of like, uh, center-right talking point. I mean, this is like how old-fashioned liberals used to talk. You went on Bill Maher and you talked about this piece, and he was kind of like, "Oh, well, this is what this is what we've always thought." You know, this is this is what it used to mean to be a liberal. And it was, you know, I know this was four years ago now, but when you would offer those sorts of thoughts, did people respond like, "Oh, well, you must be some kind of mushy centrist"? and and has it gotten worse since i mean i don't you know post george floyd i would think a column like this would not go down even as easy as it did back then
1: i don't know i mean that's a great question um uh it it uh it went down okay back then i mean um you know it's funny but you you get yes you do get i'm having a hard time remembering uh, being savage for it, but but as I'm saying that I, I'm realizing here's the thing I I, I do remember I, I'm someone who I know people who have their names on Google alerts um, who look at their Twitter mentions all the time etc. Um, and I'm not criticizing that I am someone who's never had my name on a Google alert no, never Google my name. I no. never look at Twitter mentions and I realize there are all sorts of interesting I'd probably have a bigger Twitter following I'd be a more kind of uh, coherent, logical citizen of Twitter, um, and I probably actually get into some really interesting conversations and meet, for lack of a better verb, some interesting people. I don't look at Twitter mentions on my name on Google Alert, and it's not even a high-minded position. It's about knowing where my psychological <laughs> limits are exactly. and knowing like and knowing how knowing what it means to pour acid in wounds as opposed to kind of wear bandages over them. And I wear bandages over them. So I don't really actually know what the reaction to that piece was. But I remember not long after that, another one of those kinds of pieces that you alluded to, I wrote a piece about, I think it was called like the myth of campus diversity. Um, And it was about how um, campuses kind of say, we're going to assemble a diverse student body um, and that tends to be judged by kind of racial, ethnic categories. Um, it tends not to be judged by socioeconomics, which I think are equal, equally, if not more important, if you really want a diversity of perspectives, I would argue more important. Um, and then I also wrote about how they, they they worry about it in terms of their stats, in terms of their admissions jargon, in terms of their pitches to prospective students, and then people get to campus and the worry ends and people retreat into affinity groups. They retreat into quote unquote safe spaces. Um, and I was saying that really concerned me because I thought you should kind of go to college and you should try to kind of surround yourself um, with as many people who are unlike you because it is in those it is in those encounters that you really kind of have your, your horizons, your parameters expanded and you understand the world better. And because I had talked about my concern about affinity groups, I remember getting an email from a student at Davidson College. And I think it was from there because I quoted the president of Davidson College, who said, I never I, ne- I never understood until this piece that you were a racist. Um, and it was such a disturbing email because the fact that, like, A, I see nothing racist about what I said. But it was also one of the reasons that that people retreat from these sorts of conversations, one of these reasons stuff gets sh- sh- shut down, one of the reasons, to go back to your question about college and university presence, one of the reasons people get so skittish is because there are words like racist that are so powerful, um, that are so damning, um, and they're rightly damning in the sense that it's a horrible thing to be a racist, but they are sometimes... To use your your uh, verb before weaponized um to a degree that, in order never to come upon that charge um, people don't say things that aren't even in the hemisphere of racist I don't think it's in the i don't think it's in the hemisphere or galaxy of racist to wonder if affinity groups um, are the best way to go about a college education, but that word was thrown at me
0: did you have a sense of how you were perceived within the ecosystem of New York Times columnists? Did you go into the office? What were your relationships like with other columnists?
1: My relationships, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know how, I, I can't give a good answer to how I was perceived within the ecosystem. And it's also an impossible answer because the ecosystem changed, the ecosystem of newsrooms, has changed so much over the last 10 years. Um, and so at any given moment, at any given year, the ecosystem was <laughs> uh, was probably different from what it had been a year earlier. I mean, I can tell you that um, I-, I am someone in my private life and in my New York Times life um, who has a-, a very ideologically diverse um group of, 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 of friends. So, I mean, take, take the New York times. Um, Brett Stevens is a close friend of mine. Gail Collins is a close friend of mine. Uh, Nick Kristoff is a fairly close friend of mine. Um, you know, those people are all at different, at different points in the ideological spectrum. Um, it's true in my private life too. Um, i i I want to talk to people who have had different positions than I do on issues um and I want people from different places of the political spectrum to, to to want to talk to me and I also kind of don't even know i mean I said political spectrum I've used that in writing it's hard to kind of come up with a different vocabulary I'm not even sure what that means i mean that 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 right left but that right-left kind of spectrum we talk about, it doesn't really kind of work. I mean, you know, look at Brett, for example. People consider him, uh, and he is uh, in most ways a conservative. He's someone, I guess, on the right. Uh, Brett, is, Brett is has been for many years, to my knowledge, pro-marriage equality. Brett is pro-choice. Um, I think is, I think the Brett haters out there would be shocked to learn that. Um, I know. Well, he was a yeah, guest had, on the it's not show hard to learn. He's written about it. <laughs> I know. Well, he, he
0: was on this show and he was wonderful. And I had so many people saying, Oh my gosh, I was sure I hated him. And, now i i don't know what to think, and yes, yeah, it was they were disturbed that uh, they had enjoyed him in our in our interview so much so yeah
1: <laughs> but i mean i i am I, I am as I believe in uh choice I believe in um abortion rights however you want to con- about as fervently as I believe in anything else for for a whole host of reasons that would take the rest of the podcast and there's no point. I have friends um who are uh opposed to um to, to to most abortion rights um and it is because they firmly firmly believe um i mean it, it it's core to them uh that life begins at or very soon after conception if you believe that i, I don't understand that belief but if you believe, I mean, these are these are lovely people who are not, you know, not all those contradictions that get layered. They're not people who then, you know, believe we should use the death penalty liberally. I mean, they're not they're not people who then want to deny, uh, you know, basic social services to families and needs. They don't fall into that category of, oh, yeah, you want this kid to come into the world and then you don't care about it. If so, and all of those things are legitimate. Gripes to have with the quote unquote pro life uh, phrase i don 't like crowd, but if you be- if you really kind of believe um not kind of if you really believe uh, that life begins at or near conception um I understand your struggle with abortion rights. it is not a struggle I have, but how can i mean I-, I can still be your friend I can still have a discussion with you I can still admire you as a human being i don't understand people who literally cannot. Uh, fathom at all, or inhabit the same space as people of contrary political beliefs.
0: Hi everybody, this is Julie Chrisley, inviting you to listen to our podcast, Chrisley Confessions, on the Podcast One Network. Each week we play listener voicemails and offer advice, suggestions, and opinions based on our own life experiences. Also, listen in to get the latest updates on all things Chrisley. New episodes every Wednesday on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Do you think there are a lot of people in newsrooms, particularly the New York Times, since you're familiar with that one, that are not able to to do what you just described. I mean, we were talking earlier about the perception of college campuses is that, you know, there are these woke mobs uh, controlling everything, dictating curriculum, telling administrators and professors what to do. That's not really true. That's a caricature. Does is there an analogy to what's happening in newsrooms? I mean, from the outside, people hear about what's going on at the New York Times and like oh my gosh it's been it's been overtaken by you know thirty five years old and younger radicals. How accurate is that
1: i you know i'm gonna take a pass on that not because I, and, and it no, <laughs> oh, no, you no, don't work a, it, there
0: anymore yeah
1: no, I no but in taking a pass on that i'm not like uh, that could be read as oh that's entirely accurate i just um i i don't i don't I'm struggling for sure. I don't it doesn't feel right. The Times, um, well, they're no longer my full-time employer. Um, and this isn't why I'm taking a pass, so I'm sort of kind of circumlocuting here, and I apologize for that. Um, I still do have an affiliation with the Times. Uh I, I'm on a contract with them, they publish my weekly newsletter, that sort of thing. I'm 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 a bit proper in certain ways, and I've never felt it was entirely right. The Times has been my home for 20, almost 26 years now, or, or it was my home for 25 years now. It's sort of like my, I don't know, my um a terre um, yeah. <laughs> Very so nice. I mean, but, but my point yeah. the, the is, Times, the Times gave me and continues to give me extraordinary opportunities. The Times is an extraordinary, extraordinary organization um, that has done immeasurable public good and is so admirable in a thousand ways And it's, it's, it's kind of at this point in time, my family, I don't, I don't air my family's dirty laundry, laundry in public. And I don't want to kind of hash out these things about the times in public. It just doesn't feel right to me. Um, I welcome other people doing it. I think it's really, really important because of the times as influence in the country. I think it's important that people look at it critically and even caustically, and that all of this stuff be observed and hashed out and analyzed because the times like the government, um, has enormous, enormous influence. I think it's kind of gauche for me to be that person.
0: Okay. I agree. I, I, I'm a very
1: similar temperament,
0: but you know, I have to ask.
1: I would no, be, you have to ask. I would ask, be remiss feel, in I, my and I, and, I feel, and, and I feel like a coward not, <laughs> not to, not to wait in, but I really do believe in this sort of kind of, I don't know. <laughs> victorian etiquette way i don't know what how to describe it but i really kind of do believe that it would not it would be unbecoming of me to become mr critic and analyst of the times um when it is a place where on where i where some of my closest friendships were nurtured where some of my closest friends uh to this day exist brett gail collins maureen dowd um i don't i don't want to um I don't want to sort of like kind of rummage around that kitchen and and point out where I see soiled pots and pans.
0: Okay. Well, speaking of kitchens, I when we before we started recording, you said you were sitting in your kitchen in your new home in Chapel, <laughs> Chapel Hill. So let's let's talk about your 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 next uh perch here you know it's interesting you've talked about how i thought we, you were going to
1: ask about i know i know you have a real estate fixation so oh, i, I we, do I i'm going to bring you back ask, for that i want to know yeah i want to ask about the house <laughs> yeah is it what's
0: the square footage what what's the
1: style
0: is it like Does oh, it that's just, a
1: little bit that's, that's little too bit personal invasive. but it's as I, personal. I told you i live i live in, in a very very wooded neighborhood and the the fruit of that is the raccoon or raccoons they haven't they haven't yet kind of figured out how many uh, who seem to live in my attic and the bats.
0: Okay. That's terrifying. That's,
1: that's. Well, it's not
0: terrifying.
1: It's just a little bit.
0: Especially in in this climate. What if they, what if if they're carrying a coronavirus? Oh, sorry.
1: (laughs) They don't. Never (laughs) not. They don't. I'm not having having (laughs) sex with the bats. I mean, I'm not, I'm not making a stew with them. So you obviously believe
0: in the lab leak theory. If you're so unconcerned about that, presence in your house no I'm gonna, do? I, I'm gonna put I'm just, words in your I'm just, mouth I,
1: I, i'm just i'm just i'm just not i'm just not assuming that the, the the bats seem to have established first of all they're they're north carolina bats i have no idea of what that means in terms of their their disease harboring or lack thereof um but i also have not crossed paths with them um they seem to i've seen the evidence of them in terms of some droppings um Outside, outside, right outside the garage, not inside. Um, but I have not actually laid eyes on them and we don't seem to be cohabiting in any manner that's so proximal that I should worry about okay. their bat hygiene. I'm not worried All about right. their bat hygiene, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I was gonna say you've talked about how when you were applying to college, you had your heart set on Yale and actually got into Yale early decision, I think, but you changed course and ended up going to UNC Chapel Hill. You're now going to be teaching at Duke. Um but you're in the same neck of the woods. Is this does this feel like um like you've come full circle in a way that's, you know particularly satisfying or just cool?
1: It doesn't it doesn't feel full circle. Uh it it just feels like a treat. It's it's hard to describe. I mean I am um, I like you I have a dog. Um and uh I try to mix it up for her and me by going on different kinds of walks. There is something I don't have words for it. And I want to kind of think about it because I think there's probably some sort of uh, hopefully lovely if I if I do it right essay in it. But there is something indescribably interesting, satisfying. I don't know about walking around uh, the Chapel Hill campus, which is beautiful um, and i th- i like 'm walking past places like I remember stumbling uh, down that plaza after one night of too much to drink. I remember doing something else illicit over there behind that tree. Um, I remember like rushing to an exam in that building that I was convinced i hadn 't studied hard enough for college for me was one of i think for a lot of people was not only you know a, a fun time and a fun time of great adventure but i just remember so keenly walking those same paths 35 years ago and wondering like what will become of me will Will I uh, will I make it in this world? And by that, I didn't mean like, you know, be a huge success. It's like, you know, will I be able to support myself? Do I have do I have the temperament, the sanity, the stability, the skills, the intellect, whatever? Like the world was was scary to me in the sense that I had no idea whether I would be able to navigate successfully through it. And I don't know that I did, but i've got to, i think <laughs> but I've got, you got did. to this i think uh, but i got to no, no to but say. I'm serious, but I got to this point in one piece, and I came back here and i bought I bought a lovely house in a lovely neighborhood, and I'm walking through campus with all of these flashbacks, but from this much different vantage point with my lovely dog and it just it doesn't feel full circle it feels like this enormous exquisite sigh of relief um, and of gratitude and of pride because um there were I, i'm i'm as neurotic as the next person and i have as much vulnerability and insecurity and, and fear as the next person and i made it in one piece 35 years later back here in you know uh, and i'm walking these um, and i'm contentedly walking these paths with a lovely dog um and it just feels good
0: well that is Beautiful. I'm glad to hear that. But that said, you have not yet started teaching
1: journalism.
0: <laughs> Are you going to be teaching journalism? Are you in the J school?
1: So um, one of the reasons I liked, one of the reasons I um, embraced the offer from Duke and I'm going to Duke is um, I, I never took a class at the J school at UNC. I, I, I use GN- UNC in a different way. I believe um, very fervently in a kind of classic liberal arts education. Um, I was an English major with enough classes in American studies for that almost to be a minor. I worked at the Daily Tar Heel, which was the excellent, still excellent student newspaper, and I often spent like 30 hours a week there, but I never took a journalism class per se um, because I felt like I was going to learn that by doing it. Now, that's not necessarily the route. It's one route, but I do think there is a strong argument for um, for not taking a full complement of journalism as an undergrad if you don't have to. And what Duke does is they have within their school of public policy, the Sanford School of Public Policy, they have a, a kind of grouping of, of teachers, mostly, um, mostly adjuncts, uh, a grouping of teachers and courses and resources um, that constitute a journalism kind of minor it's called a certificate and so you cannot major in journalism at duke you have to major in something else like english or history or public policy or political science or whatever Um, but they offer enough journalism classes that should that be what you think is your professional interest or should it be a side interest you can get um something of a journalism education without making that your focus i think that's a perfect approach Um, to journalism at the undergraduate level. And so that is a long way of saying to you, I'm a professor in the School of Public Policy, but I'm affiliated with the dewitt Wallace Center for Media and Democracy. And I'll be teaching some journalism skills classes, but also some greater big picture classes. Like this fall, my first class that I'm teaching is a class on the media and LGBTQ plus Americans. And what it is going to look, and it's going to look at the evolution of media coverage from basically Stonewall to the present, and it's going to look at how the media at times trails behind and at other times leads society and it's going to kind of look at the change in Americans' attitudes toward l g b t q plus people through the lens of media coverage so it's so it's it's a journalism class and yet not quite a journalism class you know we always
0: talk about you know, anybody who teaches, especially people who teach writing or journalism, we always say, is this kind of unconscionable in a way to be training people to go into a field where there really aren't any decent paying jobs anymore? I mean, this <laughs> is a, uh, this, you know, the, the returns are diminishing. So uh, do you have a particular kind of message or mission that you want to impart to these the next generation of, of journalists, if that's what they're going to end up doing?
1: Well first off it, it's interesting but b- because of the way it's done at Duke and I think this is also true in other places um it's not at all clear to me um that the majority of students i teach have a journalism career in mind or will go in that direction so and 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 that heartens me because like you i am concerned about um teaching journalism being uh that the message of that being this is going to be a great career for you and by the way it might be a great career for them i mean Journalism is changing so much that to believe it's only changing in one direction, I don't know. I mean, and it's a very strange moment because while you are correct that that whole sort of I mean, it used to be when I was when I was coming out of college, the logical starting place in most of the places I applied were local newspapers, you know, and there were a bevy of jobs and those don't exist. But it's it's in this weird journalism economy, by the same token, the people who make it in a certain kind of journalism can make it by the age of 30 in a way that's much bigger than I could have ever made it by the age of 30. So it's a weird industry because there's not a bevy of jobs, but among those people who succeed big and quickly, uh, that looks bigger than it ever did before. Um, there was a great Piece, I think, in Axios recently, just a sort of, sort of about the kind of two journalism worlds. There are the journalists who cover tech and politics on the coasts and have book deals and TV deals and podcasts and all that, and then there's the rest of the journalism world, and it's kind of like the the, the equivalent of income inequality in a very very distressing way. But I mention that because there are those journalists on the coast covering tech and covering um, um, politics. Those those tracks do exist. Um, Every time I turn around, you know, there's some new competitor to Substack or new thing along those lines. There are plenty of people, whether they're foolish or not, who are plowing money into new media ventures um you know in terms of the blogosphere in terms of subscriptions and so i don't i don't know that journalism is a dead end but i also have no reason to believe that the status quo will prevail forever because the 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 moral of the story isn't one arc the moral of the story is a change in churn that we can't predict
0: yeah, that's for sure. You're doing a newsletter for the New York Times. Did you consider doing a Substack? You seem like the kind of person that would have a lot of success. I mean, there are people uh, I, I, you know, making with, a lot of money with, doing that
1: without without trampling on on you know their uh, uh, without without being indiscreet in terms of. Stuff. I mean, like a lot of journalists, I have I have been approached by and had conversations with Substack, and, and sure, of course, I've considered it. Um, I have decided not to for now.
0: Yeah. I think it would be a lot of, and pressure. you and,
1: and I believe I believe I'm not to turn it around, but I believe you've had those conversations and you've made the same decision, right?
0: Well, I just got really burned out on having opinions. I would be I I would find it incredibly stressful if private citizens were paying their hard earned money, you know, <laughs> for me to churn out some kind of uh, take every week, and uh, yeah. just, it's not no, it's, it's not a, a life I want to be. Leading at the moment. Um, well, no, and you- one of the
1: and, and I agree with you. And, and and one of the things, if I can put in a plug for my for my Times newsletter, um, one of the reasons I enjoy doing my Times letter is it is not as to go back to that terrible adjective I invented invented toward the beginning of the podcast. Um, it's not as it's not quite as opiniony. Um, right. as, as my output as a columnist was, um, there is every one of my newsletters ends with a kind of 450 word ish thing called on a personal note in which I talk about my experiences with my dog, in which I talk about my new neighborhood, in which I talk about, and I realize saying it, it sounds really banal, but it's actually the part of the newsletter that readers respond to most. Cause it's, it's where I just kind of, you know, wallow around a little bit in my messy humanity. Um, yeah. And, um, uh, and so, and, and so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that would work as well on a Substack. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Well, you know? it works
0: for some people. There's a lot of messy humanity, uh, and just messiness generally on Substack. <laughs>
1: it's kind of a, I'm a mess. Lack yeah. of, co- lack of copy editing, uh, for, for some people. Well, <laughs> well you, can we, yeah. you, I'm so glad you said that, but that's not just, that's not just, uh, in newsletters. I've just noticed, um. I've just noticed throughout stuff on the internet. I know um, cop, cop, the, the 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 great art and the wonderful yes. imperative of copy editing seem to be in a very bad moment.
0: Oh, they many of them got laid off. I mean, at the Los Angeles Times, we had brilliant copy. The copy desk was, you know, saved us from ourselves, and a lot of those people have been laid off over the yeah. years. It's yeah. you know, it's it's tragic. Um, I just want to make sure we we before we go, we talk about. Um, What I think is your next book project, you have written really movingly and rivetingly about um, health situation you have going on involving your your eyesight. And I think that you're developing this into a book. Do you want to just talk for a minute or so about that?
1: Sure. Thank you for your interest in that. I, I am putting the finishing touches um, on a book. It's, it's, it's written, I think it's going into copy editing uh, Monday or maybe okay, Hopefully maybe there's a copy editor
0: yeah, going to be no, doing and, that and job. I think the
1: publishing houses still have copy yes, editors, thankfully. Um, uh, because I, ha- I have a feeling every end M- dash in the book is, is improper typographically or whatever. But hopefully someone will fix that. Um, uh, the book is called The Beauty of Dusk. Um, And it is about uh, it it kind of begins with and and is prompted by the fact that uh, four years ago now, almost four years ago, I woke up one morning and my vision was uh, was weird. Uh, And it turned out I could not see properly out of my right eye and I still can't see properly out of my right eye, not even close to properly. Um, if I shut my re- my left eye and try to use my right eye i can 't read i can 't see what 's on my computer screen um I had something that 's akin to a stroke of the optic nerve um and it is uh unfixable i've been in two and I read about this all in the book i've been through in through two clinical trials, one of which involved injections in my eyeball, one of which oh involves yeah i know fun, one of which involves six months of administering my own injections twice a week, like <gasps> the way a woman trying to get pregnant might do with hormones um uh that was But in your eyeball?
0: You had to, I'm no, sorry to be no, gross. No, no, that okay. was so
1: there was the the eyeball injections were just a 3 month thing once oh. a month. Uh the other injections were a 6 month thing twice a week but no it, you do it in your thigh or in your stomach. Okay. Um and it's it, it, it's a kind of I mean, I ended up being fascinated by it more than anything else. I got very good at it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had a stash of syringes and needles like uh, on my kitchen counter. I had a sharps container for my used needles. I had vials of a serum. Um, in my fridge, um, and it was weird. I remember the first day I came home with it. I thought, How will I ever get through these next six months? And you know, by the end of it, I would you know, I, I could literally load the syringe, inject myself for <laughs> <through>, like thirty <laughs> seconds. Boom, I'm done. Um, yeah, but the deep. book is the book. The book goes through that in what I hope is a sometimes moving and sometimes funny fashion. But it's really more about. Um, the, the the different ways in which you kind of look at your life when someone says you may go blind. Part of what happened to me means there's a 20% chance of it happening in my other eye. And 20%, those odds are in my favor, but when the stakes are blindness, that's huge. I met blind people, talked to them. Um, I had a different kind of, I started to have different conversations with the people in my life. Um, and I just began to think, in a much more consistent and I hope soulful way about um, the limits we all face about how, how, how you develop the right attitude about those limits. And it's a book I think ultimately that's about aging and that's why it's called the beauty of dusk. And it's kind of half memoir, half uh, conversations with people already in my life and people who entered my life as a function of this medical odyssey.
0: That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I remember reading that there was a twenty percent chance of going blind in the other eye, and that just seemed terrifying to me. I have I have very bad vision myself. I mean, it's totally correctable, but if I take my contact lenses out, I'm effectively blind. And so the idea of not of going through the world that way is just terrifying. But many many people do it, in, in extremely you know, extremely successfully. It's it's amazing, yeah, um, and, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. and it's people who were it's not. Okay blind from birth, people who went blind as adults and they- Well, most people, brilliant. it's interesting,
1: most people do go blind later. Like the the overwhelming majority of people who meet the criteria for legal blindness, it did not happen from birth. It happened later. And it's interesting because when you talk to them, I mean, I did a long column, one of my favorite columns actually, but again, an example of a column that wasn't an emphatic opinion, but I did a long column uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, on Cyrus Habib, who was then the Lieutenant Governor of Washington State. And Cyrus Habib went blind when he was eight uh, because of a childhood cancer, Um, and then went on to have a career in politics that led him to be the second highest political, second highest ranking political official in Washington State. And then the the prompt for the column was um, he was leaving politics to become a Jesuit priest, And he was someone who was being mentioned as possibly the next governor of Washington state. Um, But his blindness was sort of central to all of this because it had made him, it had made him kind of question and think about things that he might not otherwise have done. And it was very much a part of a journey that led him to renouncing all this worldly stuff, as they say, of someone who goes into the priesthood. Um, And he not only is on a path to being ordained as a priest, one of the longest paths, one of the most rigorous ordination schedules is that of a Jesuit. It lasts like eight to 10 years. And so he's now living in a Jesuit community. Um, And he was talking about the gift of seeing until he was eight years old because he had that scrapbook of visual memories so that when something is described to him now, um, he can riffle through that scrapbook to kind of get, a sense in his mind of what his world looks like but it's it's the human gift for optimizing is and this I talk about this a lot in the book is just so interesting and inspiring cuz he talks about what a gift it was to see until he was 8 one of the highest ranking jurists in the country, uh, David Tadel, who became a friend of mine, a blind judge, he talks about how well the great fortune for me is that I could see until I was thirty mm-hmm. <laughs> and he thinks all thirty years of those vision like we have such a wonderful blessed ability as humans um, if 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 we if we try to kind of look at our situations from perspectives that legitimately show us the upside and not the downside. Um, And that is something I've become so much better at as a result of this experience. And it doesn't mean, hey, I'm really glad I live with the specter of going blind. I'm not. But it has taught me and shown me things that I would not have been taught and shown otherwise.
0: That's fascinating. And it's so the opposite of the kind of lens through which The larger culture operates. It's almost like people, as individuals, are are so much more functional than society at large. In a way, it's it's if if only we could lead with ourselves. I just I'm just thinking of this now. It's like you know, or if people could just be more vulnerable about or just open about their individual struggles and vulnerabilities, maybe we wouldn't have to silo ourselves into affinity groups where we you know decide that we're vulnerable and marginalized about this other thing it's it's almost like we're using these categories as shields from
1: i think that's i, I don't think that's know. beautiful i gotta i no, gotta I hash that's, this out no, no i think that's beautifully and very well said i think that's i think that's very important um uh you know, I mean, I, I, if, if we all led with our vulnerabilities, if we all led with our insecurities, if we all led to go back to the beginning of our conversation when I was talking, and I think you were agreeing with how it can be uncomfortable uh, to be an opinion writer or a pundit and, and to supposedly be, be so certain about whether we should have Medicare for all or not, and so certain about the size of the infrastructure bill. I mean, what if we all led by talking about what we couldn't figure out? by what we felt conflicted about by what we were um doubtful about if we all led if we all led with that my god would we have a kinder gentler now i'm channeling uh <laughs> George H.W. Yep. Bush, but nothing wrong with kinder and gentler. And I wish we were kinder. We're channeling and and Peggy it,
0: Noonan actually, but yes. Yeah, but I right? think,
1: if, yes. I think, I think there's something about modern life and, and you can never divorce the effects of social media from it. Something about modern life where we're being encouraged to lead with certainty um, and with boasts. And I think if we led with admissions, confessions and humility, which is more consistent with who we are in our quietest moments or in our last minutes before we drift off to sleep. If we led with that, oh God, we'd be in such a better place. Yeah.
0: Well, just to be able to say, I don't know, that seems so radical.
1: I don't know how big the infrastructure bill should be.
0: I don't. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm not writing a column anymore because I would have to then write a column about how we should say, I don't know. And then it it wouldn't... uh, Wouldn't uh, go go viral or anything.
1: Let's not go into politics. But when we not go into politics, let's start the I don't know party.
0: Yes, (laughs) that sounds good. I think uh, everybody could find a place there. Well, Frank, thank you so much for talking with me. You've been really generous with your time. And just thanks for um, writing your column all these years and and everything you've written in your your career. It's been um,
1: just all the same. I'm so glad that
0: you're... uh, that you're out there and uh, best of luck uh, at Duke. Lucky students to be working with
1: wow. you. <laughs> lucky or beleaguered, we'll see. But anyway, all the same, thanks right back at you. And it's been um, a pleasure to spend this time with you.
0: That was my interview with longtime New York Times opinion columnist Frank Bruni. Frank left the column earlier this summer, but continues to write a popular weekly newsletter for The Times, which you can find at newyorktimes.com slash Bruni letter. That's B-R-U-N-I. This fall, he'll begin a new post as professor of public policy and journalism at Duke University in North Carolina. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you are listening to this edition before the date of August 19th, 2021, please consider joining your fellow Unspeakable fans for a virtual hangout on Zoom this Thursday, August 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern. It's free and open to everyone. Visit com slash hangout to reserve your place. Patreon supporters are automatic VIPs. You can join me half an hour ahead of time in the green room. If you're not already a Patreon supporter, you can become one at any time at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. Get lots of other perks too, like ad-free versions of this podcast, early access to the podcast, and pictures of my dog Hugo. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.